Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least and a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans have Hey everybody, welcome to the show Community Spread. I'm your host Kevin Lundell. On the pod today we have Miss Betty Sawyer. Miss Betty is such an important role model for our community. She's the president of the NAACP and does so much more to help our community. She came today to talk about some really important events in black history. We also got to hear a really important part of her story where she speaks about her experience being one of 12 to integrate her high school uh, in Maryland. It was a really important conversation, something that was deep and that I learned a lot from. So I really look forward to you guys hearing from Miss Betty. But this brings us to the point in the podcast where I tell you a little bit about what I'm learning about and what I'm thinking about. What does unity mean in a time of great polarization? You know, I was on the pod last week ranting about the GOP and being angry that they are putting forth policies and laws that are harmful, that will hurt people. And I make no apologies for that. And I don't want to unify around these policies. I want to fight these policies. And it was in that context that just yesterday I got asked to go to this event that was put on by the Weber County Sheriff's Office where they were going to have Republicans and Democrats and get together and have this show of unity through this video where they talked about the things they had in common. But none of those things they had in common revolved around important policies. And so why have Republicans and Democrats come together to talk about why they like pizza? I do think those are important, right? I do think those community events where we get around together and we eat pizza together with Democrats and Republicans, it's one of the things I love about my CrossFit community that we've created at RC Fit is that it is a space where differing opinions can come together and we respect each other and we love each other. But we are not going to make progress in this country or in the state or in the city by superficial shows of unity between Democrats and Republicans. The fact that we are in such a divisive and polarizing time means that progress may be on the precipice. And these sorts of unity around non-polarizing issues can just be an impediment to our progress. We cannot shy away from the things that we care about most deeply, we cannot shy away from our policies and the harm that some of those laws and policies that our state lawmakers are making right now are putting into place. So ultimately I decided not to go. And it's against my instincts. My instincts are always to like, yeah, I give people the benefit of the doubt. I wanna go, I wanna show this form of unity, but I also didn't think it was the right venue. and. Does that make me an asshole? I, I, I don't know. I'm grappling with that in this moment. But I really think there are opportunities for us to come together. And but those revolve around other things in our community. And we don't need to make a point that Republicans and Democrats somehow have this relationship that isn't polarizing because it is. And there's really important things on the line. I do think our community can move forward in a, in a compassionate and loving way. But that is us coming together in 
little league events and games and at the gym and these other things, but not around these really, really important issues. I think back to the civil rights time, the time in the civil rights era, and one of the most, it was one of the most divisive times in our country's history. And it was only because of that divisiveness that progress was made. I don't entirely know what that means. I don't and still don't know what unity means for our community. I do know that we can live harmoniously and we can really have hard confronting debates about these issues. And I think that's where we need to continue to go. Anyway, with that, our conversation with Miss Betty. Look how far we don't came, we made it to the slip to surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a brass. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set to survive. Welcome, Miss Betty. I'm so excited to have you back on the podcast today. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Like I said, you've kept me up past my bedtime. So if I kind of lean a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what a trooper so you are. <laughs> what a trooper you are. You know, I'm feeling it a bit today too, but we are going to power through. <laughs> Last time we had you on, we were talking about some important work you're doing in the Ogden area. And we said, we're going to have Miss Betty back to tell her story because that's what this podcast is about. And in, in typical Miss Betty fashion, we had her come back for... Black History Month here, and she's like, you know what? I think we should tell some other people's stories. Some, some instead of diving into the present and, and my story, maybe let's go back and tell the story of some really important people during Black History. And I was like, yes, this is going to be awesome. But Miss Betty, I'm not going to let you get away with us not, not letting you come back again and tell your full story because I think our listeners want to hear it. You got it. That'll work. <laughs> Sound like a deal. Yeah, like a deal. We'll do that. Awesome. So your idea was to talk about some of the lesser known parts of, of Black history and parts of Black history during the Reconstruction era. Yes. And is after Black men have the right to vote and there are Black men voting at the time. And there are people who actually, Black men during this time who actually get elected to office. Tell me why you wanted to share that part of history and why that part of history brought up brought, brought into your mind i think just because of where we are in our country we're just coming off of an election a presidential election we have just seen the work that stacy abrams did in georgia to galvanize and mobilize and educate voters and really get them out and then even you know on a local level uh, thinking about the impact of voting and elections on a, on a municipal level, on a county level, on a state level. Because a lot of times we, we look at the presidential election and forget that a lot of what goes on happens right at home, close to us. So I was thinking, you know, this is a good way, hopefully, to inspire uh, others to think about elected office, to recognize that it's happened before, so it could happen again on a positive note. And then those things that took place in between that could threaten, you know, rights that have been gained over time. So wow, I love that. And and I hopefully we can do that in, in, in this podcast and talk about the rights that were given, rights that were getting taken away, some that were given, and how they're still under under threat today. So 
Speaking of rights getting given, on January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln gives the Emancipation Proclamation. We know at that time, that's not the moment when all black slaves are freed. Uh, a special holiday for you is, is Juneteenth. <laughs> Tell me about Juneteenth. This is something um, I have, most people have just more recently started to learn about, but I know in Miss Betty's house, Juneteenth has been celebrated forever. For a little while, for a little while, <laughs> yes. And so for us, even though the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, uh, we talk about word moving slowly across the country. And so it wasn't until almost two years later, two and a half years later, that those who were in Texas, those enslaved, uh, got word that they had actually been freed. Uh, Army General Granger wrote into Texas, reissued the order and said, hey, you're free. And so a huge celebration broke out. It happened to be June the 19th, 1865. Since that time, over 150 years later, we're still celebrating uh, that freedom. And also, from what I understand at that time, that it wasn't just, I mean, the word had to travel and pass, but it was also that the enforcement had to come from the United States military. Mm -hmm. And Texas is like the furthest away uh, uh, Southern state in the, in the Union, uh, Confederate state in the Union at the time. And they had to, you know, actually enforce this with oh, yeah. federal troops. And so it wasn't until that uh, June 19th uh, of 1865, which, you know, that's two and a half years. That's a long, that's a long time, but you know, free labor. You know, I don't think they had the planners didn't have any incentive to let people go if they could get some extra work out of them. And unfortunately, that's the case. And we're hearing uh, more and more information about other places that freedom didn't come on 1863 either. You know, so not just Texas. Yeah, I think there were other states in the Union at the time still still practicing slavery for, for a time. Right. Uh, and that takes, takes us to our next big important moment, which is the passage of the 13th Amendment. How did the passage of the 13th Amendment change and make it so this was it ratified, this was in our Constitution? How did this change versus what the Emancipation Proclamation did? For those people who had gained their freedom, not having the right to vote and those other privileges still made them feel like we don't really, we're not equal yet. Even though we're saying we are, we don't have the same rights and privileges to move about, to do those things. So with the 13th Amendment, that was kind of, you know, the icing on the cake. Okay, maybe this is really real and we can move forward. But even with that, they had that little clause in there that left the door open, you know, for, for those who did not agree with freeing the slaves uh, and, and that full equality were able to use to circumvent that system as well. I was kind of learning a little bit more about the 13th Amendment, that, that this is the amendment that freed the slaves. And, and the ratification process, you know, it takes a lot to, to create an amendment to the Constitution. You know, it, it requires, at the, at the time, 27 of the, it requires two thirds of the, of the states to, to say, yes, we're in. And during this time, I mean, the time when the, when the 13th Amendment gets passed for, through Congress, before it gets ratified, President Lincoln is assassinated. Mm -hmm. And so, boy, we are in the just really thick times of our nation trying to get through 
and and move past slavery and um, you know it takes Andrew Johnson's the next president and he's a bit of a problematic president oh, one of the things sure. a lot for sure <laughs> tell me about that why do you say that <laughs> well he, he wasn't all in himself you know you're right Mo most of our early leaders were slaveholders themselves and so they were looking after their own self-interest while still trying to build this thing we call a country and bring us all back together. And so, uh, yeah, he wasn't as helpful as, as we had hoped he would be. Yeah. And from what I understand, Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln decided that, you know, he had him run to try to kind of unite the states. He'll be my vice president, even though he doesn't agree with some of my things. And the vice president was a lot of a figurehead at that time. And he figured, ah, it'll be fine. It won't be too bad. <laughs> yeah. One of the things he, uh, Andrew Johnson does do at the time was he did kind of tell the Southern states, hey, in order for you to get back into the union, you need to ratify the 13th right. Amendment, right? But he does kind of tell them this this clause you're talking about. He says, yeah, but we're gonna, you're gonna put a clause in there. It's gonna say uh, that the states have right to enforce this. And so they're not, you, you're gonna be able to decide what you rights- still have power. So you still have power. You're gonna get to decide what rights this, what rights, uh, these black folks have in your state, and and so you'll 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 still be it'll, it'll be okay. You know it'll he's he coddle he coddles them along a little bit. Yes. Um, and then moving forward, we, we get the passage of the Fourteenth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment is the one that gives citizenship citizenship rights and equal protection <laughs> under the law. Yes. What did that do for folks in that time? I think I think again it took us one step further because with the Thirteenth Amendment, you know, right after that, uh, with that clause about except for you know servitude, you know, committing a crime, and then the states got to call whatever they wanted a crime, you know, through those black right. codes and things of that nature, and so with the Fourteenth Amendment, a lot of those codes were rescinded, and so. Uh, those codes, you could go to jail for almost anything. You know, standing in a group of three or four people would be considered loitering or vagrancy. Uh, you're not working. And, and you know, uh, if you didn't work, then most of the time you were working for hardly no money at all. You know, it was it's not even a good step up from enslavement. And so you really couldn't support yourself. And you end up in this, you know, borrowing money to try to build a life and, and raise a crop and do those things with the family. And so with the 14th Amendment, like I said, it rescinded a lot of those laws. So it opened the door for better opportunities around employment and things of that nature, getting a better wage uh, for your work versus basically not working for free as we had yeah. during enslavement. And, you know, during the before this, this amendment doesn't get ratified until July 9th of 1868. So it's another three years uh, plus after after the 13th Amendment. And so you're talking about a time when you as, as the circumstances you described, of um, you know, black folks being prosecuted for crimes, whatever crimes that the state decided to, to, to make up and and really not having rights and citizenship rights under the law. Um, 
This 14th Amendment is super important in our history. It's really, really important in our history. It's the, it's the amendment that really defines citizenship um, and uh, gives rights to birthrights to anyone born in this country. And so it's a, it's a really important amendment. It's the amendment that um, has been the basis for uh, other really important Supreme Court cases like Brown versus Board mm-hmm. um, that eliminated uh, segregation, like Roe v. Ro- Roe v. Wade, uh, Oberfell versus Hodges, the the same sex marriage um, case, mm-hmm. uh, were all argued around this this Fourteenth Amendment. So it's a really really important amendment. Huge, huge. And and I found the the way. I mean, again, we're in this time that's very divisive, uh, but the way that Congress was the one. Andrew Johnson's kind of sided with the Southern states at this point, but Congress says, no, no, uh, you know, Confederate states, you are, we're not going to allow you to have representation in Congress unless you ratify the 14th Amendment. And so they kind of wielded their power uh, instead of the the president wielding his power. And so they decided to do it. And that 14th Amendment had really important implications throughout the, the rest of our history. Yes, even now. <laughs> yes, even even yes. now, absolutely. Um, and so then we get to the last of the Reconstruction Era amendments, and that's the Fifteenth Amendment. Um, tell us about that one, Miss Betty. So again, uh, more of those laws being uh, rescinded, and that you know, looking at that full citizenship. And so with that Reconstruction Era, we saw you know. Blacks exercising their right to vote and and finally being able to own land and things of that nature, because prior to that, land ownership was prohibited, uh, even renting land, let alone owning it. And so moving on into the 15th Amendment, where Blacks uh, got their full rights to vote and all of that uh, opened up the door for that forward movement to, like you said, full citizenship for the most part. Another yeah. whole era. Yeah, and that 15th Amendment um, was one that gave Black men the, the right to vote specifically. And I found something really important here. And, and that was that the 15th Amendment, as it reads, it doesn't, it reads, it says that it prohibits each state from denying a citizen the right to vote based on race. So it's not a it's not a positive amendment. It doesn't say black men have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And it says that, that you can't deny that based on race. Yeah. Which short, you know, so uh, shortly after the passage of the 15th amendment, people started finding all sorts of ways to deny black men the right to vote, but by, by not tying it to race. Yes. Right. And I want to get to that time. But what I really wanted and what you wanted to talk about was tell a few stories about folks during this era, this time after the passage of the 15th Amendment, um, where uh, some black black folks were able to hold office. Uh, they were able to vote. They were there were representatives in in our Congress in the in the um, late 1800s um, who were black at the time. And it's a you know it's a really important time in our history that I think is a little bit lesser known because we, we associate that time so much with um, the civil rights movement that happens much later. But there is yes. this kind of few, the couple decades there where um, black folks are making a, 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 are able to become part of our political process. Yes, and, and 
I had read someplace and I couldn't find where I had heard this. It could have been a podcast or something about the number we love podcasts of, of black men that voted that first time when when they were given the right to vote and uh, propelled and impacted the next presidential election. They were like of all of the the black men that gained the right to vote, eighty percent of them voted in that presidential election. Wow, With, they came out in droves. They, they came out in droves. So that's something, you know, that have consistently been a part of our history, you know, taking very seriously this right mm. to vote. I mean, it's one of those things about God and the vote. You know, it's not a long space between the two. You could get excommunicated from your family if you didn't vote. And so <laughs> that's how serious that was, you know, in the Black communities across our country, and especially across the South, where it has such a tremendous impact on liberty, you know, in general, being able to to work and take care of your family without fear of, you know, death and, and everything else that went along with that. And so being able to have actual uh, people in Congress, because we had a few that were even elected to state governments in places where you wouldn't think, but that's where most of the blacks were in the South because of the enslavement and, and cotton and sugar and tobacco and all of that. And so in a lot of places, they outnumbered whites in a lot of communities. And so you had your high rebels uh, being elected to Congress, no less in the 1800s and you're like, what? I remember the first time I saw a picture, it was four congressmen, four black congressmen. And it's like, wow, that is, can't believe it. And you look today, when I looked at that, we didn't have that at that time. And so uh, it, it was really a, a critical time for blacks to believe and exercise these rights and feel that yes, we can make a difference, yes, you know, we're not going to be judged by, you know, our the color of our skin. We'll have an opportunity to participate fully in this new government, in this new, um, this new era. And so, like I said, Heim Rebels was one of those folk. And um, Robert What I'm Smart saying is he, he was, he was the, the actual the first, first, the first black senator, correct? Yes. Yes, uh, from from Mississippi. And he was elected Mississippi. in eight, Mississippi, right? I mean, that's what goes to show in that time, Mississippi. The, yes. the you know they the you said they came out eighty percent, and of yes. course they had a black representative as they should. You know, yes. he represents their community. <laughs> uh, but this is in eighteen seventy. I don't think we realized that that, that far ago. back yeah. that there were black representatives in in our Congress mm -hmm. and how important that was. Um, you mentioned another name right at the end there. Robert Smalls, and, and he came from an enslaved, he was enslaved himself wow. and ended up uh, being a Navy, I think he was a Navy person and was in the Union, uh, uh, fighting with the Union and things of that nature. And he ended up being elected to Congress as well during that time. I think probably- 1875. Like you say, in, and those those eighteens were they were rocking it, and yeah. so even uh, prior to that, I know there was one gentleman uh, was it Chestnut 
Cheswell. Uh, he was elected to state government. He's credited as being the first black elected to any office, any governmental office. Oh. And he was, the, I think he was in Virginia, someplace like that. It continued so, from there. Wow. Yeah. So tell me, you, you talked about how uh, black voters started turning out at high numbers. And obviously, this is a threat to the status quo uh, power, the, that white yeah. male power of the time. Then we, we bump, up, bump up against the early 1900s, late 1800s. What did the states start doing uh, to move that power back, to not give up that power, that, that white supremacy? How, what did they start doing at that time? And, and that's what we had talked about earlier, some of those codes, you know, you, you had to be a landowner, but no one was selling you any land. <laughs> you know, we had things about, you know, having to be able to read and write, but you weren't allowed to go to school. You know, you weren't allowed to be educated and those types of things that went on to, re, to shift that power so that blacks did not have that same political, that same political might. Yeah, so there's, um, you mentioned a couple of them. Land ownership uh, was, you know, because that 15th Amendment wasn't a affirmative amendment, mm -hmm. they were find other ways. Oh, oh, we're not, we're not, you know, making it so that you can't vote because of your race. We would never do that. That's against the law. But it's, but you also have to own land. And you 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 have to understand the state constitution and take yeah. this test before yeah, you do it. Memorized it. Yeah. And the proctor for the test happened to be somebody that let all the white folks pass and all the black folks not pass, right? Yes. Um, sure. so, so they start to move the power of the voters away. And, and and that has a dramatic effect on those people getting elected to office. Yeah, and that's when you, you know, when we hear the terminology about states' rights, that's part of that, you know, dual, the, the good and the bad. We can say, yes, we need to have that power closest to us, but we've seen in our history how having, you know, states being able to determine how and, and the way that they administer government and policies being a detriment to us because, you know, that's what we saw happen. So this period, and, and not to mention, uh, and I think we would be remiss to not mention this, the amount of horrific intimidation of Black folks yeah. that happened at the time. Yeah, yeah, it was terror. It was straight up terrorism. Straight up terrorism, it, perpetuated it, by the terrorism. KKK. Yeah, and, and even, you know, when we look at some of the things today about, um, our, our relationship with law enforcement. A lot of that stems from those days, the, the 1800s, early 1900s, when law enforcement was a part of that terror organization. You know, they were, they were bringing people and slave people back. They were going to look for them. They were, you know, working with, with planters to take away those rights. And so for us, like I said, we've had this strange history with, with law enforcement. There was no way of uh, knowing, you know, when you think about the KKK, everybody could have been in the KKK, whether it was the mayor or, or you know, or law enforcement or the bank or whoever, because that's what was going on. It was one of those things you didn't know, but we were experiencing that terror and, and people going to vote 
could get beat, they could get killed. Uh, even up into the early 1900s and, and 30s and 40s, even that period of time, you could lose your job, you know, to get your name on a roll, to register and vote. That could mean your livelihood. I didn't, I, I yeah, that, I didn't realize that it was part of it either. Um, you know, one of the things I learned as I was reading a book by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast was that, you know, this, this sort of terror you describe and this sort of white supremacy that you describe was so prevalent that, I mean, the, your neighborhood friends and family would gather around for the, the lynching and for, and it was so bad that it was studied by Hitler himself. Like he learned from the, from what was happening in America, how to, he learned from the United States of America, the culture that was happening at the time, how to dom how to create white supremacy in Germany. That's crazy. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, it's a it, that that one really it just hit me because we think so, you know, we condemn as we should Hitler in every single way, but what we don't realize is our history is really really fraught. It is. In a way that he learned from from our history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah you know, we, I remember, you know, in college uh, history classes, seeing pictures uh, that they would take around lynchings, you know, and the whole family was there from the youngest to the oldest. And it's like, wow, what kind of marks does that leave on someone's mind to be in the middle of, of something like that? You know, and that African proverb that says, I am because we are, all of these things connect us in really strange ways. And we're all been impacted by this history in our country. And so when we think about why are we still dealing with some of those same things today, that's because a lot of this has gotten passed on uh, into our, our mental and emotional DNA over all of these years. And even within families, we have people that think this is right and somebody on the whole other end doesn't think anything's wrong with it because we've seen so much of it coming uh, from people that we care about, that we love to look back at our history and say, oh, my grandpa, my great grandpa, you know, you, you have to come to grips with that. And it's difficult. We're starting to see this pattern, this wave pattern that happens in the United States history. You know, we from our beginning, we have a constitution that says all men are created equal, but clearly are not. We have this period of these passages of these reconstruction era after the Civil War, these amendments and rights given. And then we see these rights being taken away by states uh, enacting unjust laws and that power shifting really hard back um, towards white supremacy. What's the process that this starts to shift back into more of a positive, affirmative right to vote um, for Black Americans? When does that happen and what, what takes place? And for me, and, and I'm trying to think if there was uh, just one particular issue, but for Blacks, you know, they never stopped fighting for those rights. You know, we had Dred Scott case, and then we move on to, you know, that separate and unequal and, and people challenging systems in education, because for us, we saw that education was that passport, you know, to the future. 
and not being able to attend schools and then having to build our own and other people building schools so that we didn't have to go to school with black folk. I remember uh, as a part of uh, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan's story, uh, she's from Texas. And so she was the first, I think, black female elected to a state and then congressional seat out of Texas. And when she went to college, they built a black college so that she and other blacks didn't have to go to the Texas, the all white college. And so it's like, okay, that's one way to get your own school. Wow. <laughs> What a woman. <laughs> so, no, you can't go to the University of Texas. We're going to make this other college and you all can go to that one. So. Yeah, that's just, that's, yeah. And so that we know that like that, that process, you mentioned the Dred Scott case. That was um, even, that was in, in 1857 where they basically said uh, a black man has no rights. None. Um, they're, they're not, they can't be a citizen. It's really the, one of the biggest stains on the Supreme Court ever and they really lost their you know their power yeah. after after that decision because the all the union states were like why would we listen to them they don't you know yeah. and, and you know that one got overturned by the 14th amendment and yes and, you know so they're they're like you said there's always been this fight this push this pull this round versus board as they start to Ooh. you know strike down separate but equal i i remember listening just recently to uh john lewis obviously he's passed away now but he talked about how he, when he heard that board versus Brown versus board passed, he thought, Oh, I'm going to go to a integrated school next year. Yeah. No, and that, that wasn't exactly like they were celebrating. Yes. Like this is happening. We're doing it. That wasn't exactly how it happened. Right. Oh no. For in, in Maryland, the school that I attended, it took, you know, almost 12 years. What, and when were you in Maryland and what, what, what during this, what years so, were these? I, that's where I grew up. I came, you know, I came here out of college. And so I was one of 10 students in 1966 to integrate the high school, 66, 54 to 66. So 12 years later, you were one of 12, 12 years later. That all deliberate speed was not deliberate. It's almost like with Juneteenth, you know, two and a half years later. With it, it, I mean, people thought that. I, I remember looking at some documents from the Board of Education when they were having dialogue about uh, integration, and and so they had to end up. The federal government had to end up coming in a lot of communities to do these kind of dissent decrees look if you don't do it this year you're going to lose this funding or you're going to lose this or, and all of that but 12 years later for me tell me about that experience <laughs> it, it was it was it was crazy so uh in our community there was no kindergarten so elementary was first through sixth grade and so i come home from playing in the sixth grade that summer, school is out, and the elementary school principal and two teachers are in my living room. When I come home, I try to duck and go upstairs, and my mom called me into the living room and said, come on in here. 
you know, we're talking about you. <laughs> and so I go in and sit down. I didn't, you know, I really didn't know the true significance of what was going on. For me, it was, uh, they were denying me the opportunity to go. To, I'm the youngest of six children. So I always look forward to going to high school where all of my siblings went. Black and gold, you know, Worcester High already, marching band, you know, sports, all of that stuff, glee club, drama club. And I can only imagine you were so like you having being the youngest myself, like I knew Bonneville High, you know, and like, you know, like, so I can only imagine what that was like for you knowing, okay, having your future kind of spelled out already from your siblings about where you're going to go to school and what that school is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And then, and then they said, "Nope, mom." My mother said, uh, "She'll go. She'll be there." And so I felt like you know I had been betrayed. Mother, I thought you loved me. Why do I have to go? And so that's what I did. A group of us uh, on my side of town. There were probably five of us that ended up walking to the corner not too far in our neighborhood to wait for the bus to take us to the all white high school. And so for the first, probably most of the year, but, but, but really the first three, four or five months were crazy. I didn't want to be there. They didn't want us there. There were 10 of us all together that ended up and five of us were coming into seventh graders there were a few others that were ninth or 10th grade that decided to, you know, integrate to come with that group of us. And so uh, you're in the class by yourself, of course, and we see each other at lunch and, and you know, Beverly Crenshaw were all the black kids sitting together in the lunchroom in the cafeteria. That was the meeting place. Was like, Can't wait. I need to, you know, get with somebody I know, some friends. So yeah, it it was it was a challenging uh, part of my my life, and and you know propelled me in a lot of different ways. I went from radical <laughs> because I I had to fight. I bet I had to fight. And my yeah, mother was saying, "Turn the other cheek." He said, "Yeah, as soon as you turn that corner, I'm gonna," sh-, you know. And so it was it was kind of. You, you fought. You had to defend yourself, you know, being being called the N-word, being, you know, people try to pick fights with you all the time. And it wasn't just students, you know, it was a challenge with teachers who didn't think you deserved to be there either and didn't want to teach you. And so I had to deal with all of that to the extent at one point, you know, I was mentally checking out of school. It's like, this ain't worth it. <laughs> All I want to do is 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 go to class and do what I need to do. And I have to deal with students. I have to deal with, with teachers not treating me the way I know I should be treated. And so, um, yeah. My, what, uh, what were the discussions like between between you and your mom after after this time? Right. Because I think as a parent, that would be be so hard to know that your child is struggling, know that it's a decision that you pushed on them some because you 
had these moral principles and you knew it was right, you knew it was a really important time in our history. What were those conversations like between you and your mom in those first several months as you were struggling and she, I'm sure, was struggling with the decision? Yeah, and for her, she, she's a very spiritual person. I come from a very spiritual family. And, and her thing was, you know, God is with you. You'll be okay. She would tell me stuff like, you know, uh, hold your head up, stick your chest out. Nobody knows what's in your pocket unless you tell them. So you have a right to be there. You know, God didn't make no junk. You know, all of those, you know, kind of cliches. She would say that, you know, we're different, but no one's better than you. So she would just try to continue to encourage me to go back out there. And she was an NAACP president. So that's what they had been fighting for. So I had to be a part of that experiment. So she could very well say, yes, right. <laughs> and integration. And then her baby goes to the other school. She's like, yeah, but, but this is going to be hard on my child. So we're going we're gonna to let somebody else break that down. Yeah. And so she felt I was strong enough and the support system was there, you know, to, to help me make it through. And I did, but my I found my solace in playing sports. Mm. Being that youngest kid in the community, we all played all the time. I have two older brothers, so they let me go to the basketball court with them. My dad was an avid baseball player. And so we'd go to, you know, Sundays, we, we were at the baseball diamond at the church. And so once I honed my athletic ability, that was the equalizer for me. When I got on the basketball court, it's you and me, nobody else. So let me see what you can do, because I'm going to try to get you every time, you know. And the same thing with whether it was volleyball, basketball, softball, that was my chance. That was your chance and it gave you that, it empowered you. And all of a sudden there was equal footing um, and for you to show who you were at those moments. How, what were your teammates like during that time as you were stepping on the court or the field with them? In, in the beginning, it was, it was challenging. You know, I had to, I had to really fight to, to be able to start. I had to fight to get that prime position because the other folk, their family members, you know, like the boosters and the supporters, and they're putting pressure on the coaches to keep their kids in the game. And so by the time I got to the ninth grade, there were a lot more Blacks at the school. So they weren't just dealing with the 10. Now they were dealing with the 50, the 100, the 200 Black students. So they couldn't keep denying and couldn't keep, you know, pushing us out. So pretty soon, you know, the black kids were the stars on all the teams kind of thing. And so we then developed our own camaraderie ship. You know, you're, you're riding on the bus together. So we, we talk, we'd hang out, we'd give each other, you know, that high five and encouragement to, to keep, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And then eventually my teammates, they were, they were cool. You know, I go back to family reunion, I mean, to class reunions from my high school. And, and we talk about the cool kids. You know, there, there was a group that uh, were more open and accepting and, and some even standing up, you know, for you. Because I had students, white students that would challenge teachers in the classroom when they would be being really just ignorant. 
Really? And, and they would they would step up and challenge him. Um, my high school uh, basketball coach, we became really close. You know, we, we would have those conversations and um, she would talk about and she she took all of the black students under her wings. And, and that was one of the things that made me uh, not be so angry and, and, and not put all white people in the same boat and said, they're not all bad. Some of them are okay. Because Miss Westcott, she was good. She was for real. She would invite you to her home, you know, kind of thing, all of that, and, and give you that encouragement. Do you know if she was under pressure at that time for, you know, taking the black students under her wing and helping them along the way? Was she was, but but for the most part, she did she didn't care. Uh, awesome. They weren't from that area, and and I found out later her husband had played professional basketball or something like that in New York. And so they were just different. And I guess the community accepted them as being different, but she was a good coach and all of the, everybody liked her. So I think that helped parents, you know, not be as, as challenging and difficult. But, but one of the things that happened the year I graduated, I graduated class of 71. So by then the, the school was, you know, they closed down the black school by the time we were in the ninth grade. So everybody that lived in that community was at the high school. And for the first time, uh, they would give out, you know, when you graduate the awards, they give out the most is, the best is, the da-da-da-da-da. That year, they chose not to give out the most athletic awards because that was the first year that, Black students were going to get those awards. Yes. yes. No way. So they're just yes. like, oh, yeah, we don't. We're, we're just removing that category of awards. They eliminated the category because I was the most athletic female. And, and one of my friends, Mitchell, was the most athletic. I mean, he lettered in soccer, basketball, everything, you know. And, and they didn't give out that award that year. I thought about going back and making them give it to me now you know so, absolutely okay. absolutely <laughs> give me that award i still want it i still want that i worked hard for that you know playing all the practices and walking home you know by myself and that kind of stuff and the following year the white parents balked at it and said why didn't you do this and so they reinstated and probably for the next years all the black kids won all the awards and so <laughs> awesome what did the makeup of the school look like after the black school closed and it was fully integrated was it uh you know was it a i think it's mix, pretty, pretty, it's even, pretty about half and half and yeah definitely so i would imagine school got easier as that full integration happened and it did by the time my nieces came along you know they were everything you know they were the the valedictorians and the, you know all of that stuff so they it was fully integrated and i think people finally realized okay this is where we are this is it so wow miss betty that is an incredible story <laughs> i'm so glad we got some personal stories out of you today so we may not have to do this again. Huh? Oh, we will. There's more. There, I'm, there are more stories. I, I want to know all about how that led into your activism that you talked about and 
how you learned to become a fighter and, and oh, I had, yeah fighting every day you know we had dogs you know let out on us coming home from school oh, wow. you know all kind of crazy stuff and so yeah and i wasn't always the nicest person you know i would i would <laughs> pick i would pick some fights <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes you got to go on offense, right? I mean, let's yeah, let's be honest. Some, you can't just, yeah, get get into some good trouble every now and again. Yeah, that good trouble. She didn't mess with me just far too long. I'm gonna get her. <laughs> I love, that is right. I love that. You know, we we come up against and we get the Civil Rights Act following uh, Dr. King, Dr. King, and. Um, that that starts to happen and we start to really have, you know, school integrations, as you talk about, we start to have more rights given to black voters and to black people in general during, during those years. Tell me how the black vote is, is still under attack. What, what, what is some things that Stacey Abrams was up against when, cause you mentioned her earlier and how is that still being affected today? It is. And, and we had mentioned earlier, you know, with the Shelby case, when, when some of those rights and some of those protections were removed from the Voter Rights Act and gave states more autonomy in, in what they could and couldn't do in terms of determining who can vote and what do you need to vote. And this is something that we've seen, you know, whether ID or, you know, if you don't have this certain piece of ID, or maybe you need two or three pieces of ID now in order to vote. And so uh, for someone who has a felony record in a lot of states, if you had a felony record, you couldn't vote. A lot of states, you know, are then because of challenges to that, as long as you're not currently uh, in a secure facility. And, and I remember even in the state of Utah, when, when Senator Pete Suazo and others were, were fighting to gain those voting rights for people with a felony record. And so those are things that we've been up against. Um, redistricting has had a major impact on, on voting, you know, where people have gone in, you know, that political party or whoever that leadership is that had the jurisdiction and that difference in states who gets to do the redistricting. But for a lot of places, it's been surgical, like somebody took a Sharpie and said, okay, this is where all the black people are. So we're gonna make a circle around this and we're gonna take this over there. And and when we see that even locally, some of the redistricting that has taken place here, even in Ogden has, you know, uh, Ogden was one of the, the last, areas that had some democratic strongholds and redistricting came in and added places to the far west or Riverdale and all of that to inner city Ogden. It's like, okay, two totally yeah. different populations, two total different everything, but uh, that's that's what we've had to deal with. Yeah, so you're talking about the process of that's, that's known uh, as gerrymandering and, mm-hmm. you know, they every 10 years after the census there, these districts are, these state, um, the, the state legislatures are able to draw the maps as to who who they represent, right? 
And the way that they can do this is by, you know, they take uh, in, you know, inner city Ogden, which would be more diverse and lean democratic. And they, they can draw the maps to divide up that diversity in a way that disperses it amongst like far West and other places and make it so uh, that, you know, really their vote matters less because it's been pooled into a a group of different voters. Yes. And, and, I saw that happening for the first time. I remember the first time they they first tried to gerrymander Ogden and they were doing it straight down the middle with inner city and four different quadrants. And we happened to hear about it at the last minute and showed up, you know, at the meeting and said, oh no, you can't do this. But then four years later they did it, you know, whenever they redid it. So it happened anyway to uh, a lesser extent, but still. It, it it happened, and and those are things that uh, there's I think current legislation now on a national level, I think they're gonna uh, John Conyers Voting Rights Act. I meant uh, not John who just passed John Lewis. Lewis John Lewis Voting Rights Act is is still out there to kind of bring those things back to an equitable place and, and restore some of those things that that shall be took away uh, yeah so. the john the the this is one of the reasons why we're really hoping that at some point in the future um democrats can make some on a national level some some good changes um in order to do so they'd have in order to pass the john lewis voting rights act they would have to um end the filibuster uh, and do it, do it under 50 votes. And, you know, it's one of those things that like, I think is, is it's worth doing, you know, yes. get it and making Republicans on, put them on the record, you know, Hey, you yeah. don't want to pass voting rights. You don't want to pass voting rights. Basic, okay. Basic, basic rights. Yeah. You don't want to pass voting rights. Let's go ahead. And we're going to do this on a 50 vote uh, margin. And I think the I think, you know, that uh, the, the, the country will understand and they want a government that works works for them. So we know, I think, uh, Ms. Betty, you've done a great job of helping us outline how the rights of Americans can be given, can be taken away, and that we're still fighting for those today. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really important for us to hear voice from voices like yours and hear that experience of yours and, and to share that experience because you know, um, we have to keep fighting. We have to. We, and a lot of our young people and, and older people, it's not just our young people. I, I run across people all the time that still don't vote. They say that it doesn't matter, you know, and, and I try to let them know it does matter. You know, your one vote matters and people will count your vote whether you use it or not. They'll, they'll assume, okay, this many people didn't vote. So we can do A, B, and C. Uh, we know with this community, this is how they usually vote. So this is, they, they plan based on all of that. And so I said, you can either use it or you let somebody else use it, okay? You choose if you're gonna stand up and, and exercise that, that tremendous, and I look at it as, a, you know, it's a right, but at the same time, because of the work, because of the fights, because of the lives that, that put themselves on the line to, to make it possible, it's a gift as well. 
And, and when someone gives you a gift, you receive that gift and, and you, you embrace that gift. And so for me, voting is, is, is a gift as well as a right. And, and I have to receive that and use it to the best of my ability. Thank you for inspiring us um, to, to use that vote and to use our voice. Uh, you know, we, met, we talked about drawing lines and, and uh, there is currently Proposition 4 passed in 2018. And that proposition was that there was supposed to be a third party that's gonna draw the redistricting lines this year. Yeah. There's supposed to be a third party commission. And the, the, the proposition said that the state legislature was to accept those Mm -hmm. uh, but the state legislature gave themselves some wiggle room to uh, not accept those and to do what they want. So we have to be aware. We have to, to know what's going to happen. And at, at the right time, we have to let our voices be heard on this issue because this is a really important one that Ms. Betty yeah. has talked to us about right here on this thing. Yes, and one of the things with the Ogden branch of the NAACP, we've set out some legislative watch committees to help us stay abreast of what's going on uh, in, in the state legislature. So we need to you know, get people out and start calling our elected officials or you know, whatever the case may be that we're able to mobilize and let our voices be heard. Ms. Betty, as, you, as we leave here, tell our listeners what else they can do. You mentioned the NAACP. Join the, the local NAACP. Ms. Fetty's the president of the NAACP. I've done that. Um, uh, so make sure you, you do that. What else can people do to make sure that we keep those, those rights and the rights for, for all Americans moving forward? And I think it's important for all of us, you know, as, as we become more aware, more educated to speak up. It's, you know, you can write op-eds, you can make those phone calls to our elected officials. You can sit in on city council meetings, county commission, legislative uh, meetings, all of that stuff is online. So we don't really have an excuse. We don't have to drive and go to a meeting. We can just chime in and listen. Our school board meetings, because these, this, this is the closest form of government for us. And we have the opportunity to bring about change. And if we don't speak up, because we're hearing a lot of weird things coming out of our uh, state. We're hearing things that are challenging in the school board meetings and all of that. And these are places that we need to be and, and encouraging people to listen in, to speak up and, and, and participate as much as possible. And the other part of that is, is just taking the time to learn and, and engage in conversations around issues. Uh, that are important to you so that you can hear other perspectives on your journey of trying to come to your own truth, you know, figure out what it is you think and believe and why. And if it's based on sound, you know, principles and facts. Awesome, Miss Betty. Thank you so much. And that's it for the show today. I want to really thank Miss Betty for spending some time and coming out and having that conversation with us. As always, I want to thank Decker Yazzie for our artwork and August the Great for our awesome theme music. Again, special thanks to Dan Martinez on the back end with the podcast. He's always there for us, helping us out, making a great show. Thanks, everybody. Community Spread is a Deep State Media production. It's produced by me, Kevin Lundell, and directed and edited by Dan Martinez.